different than ACDC. Aaron, we're back. We're back. Hey. Back in the saddle? Back in black. <laughs> we're back. It's August 2nd, 2018. This is Season 9, Episode 8 of the Soybean Test Podcast. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Matt. Oh, man. Uh, what, it's been like two weeks? It's been a long time. Oh, it's too long. We had to come down from that ACDC high. (laughs) Got a lot of social media attention from that one. Got fired up. And by that I mean like three tweets. Yeah. Yeah. It's three more than we usually get. (laughs) And the author even responded. I know. So if you listener don't know what we're talking about, um, go back and listen to the last podcast. It's pretty sweet. We we reviewed an article that tested a response of soybean aphids, their natural enemy, and the plant to ACDC. For real. Rock and roll ain't noise pollution. To an aphid, anyway. So anyway, we got more to talk about. So much the list about. is long today. Yeah, and no trivia. So this is we're getting right into meat. Mm. The meat of it. There's no there's no shaft on this. This is substance. Yeah. Oh, this episode has so much substance. Okay. Hey, but before like we get into the substance, can I just one shout out? What? One shout out. Um, uh, FC uh, Bug... Uh, Bug eaters, eaters are uh, doing well. Their seasons continued a bit, but I don't want to talk about that soccer team. I want to talk. I want to give a shout out to ISU alum of the women's soccer team, Haley Womack, who is also a graduate of QHS, future Hall of Famer. There, she's now coaching the John Wood Community College women's soccer team. So, all right, where to go, Cyclone, Cyclone Nation, spreading into West Central Illinois. Well, Haley, good luck. Kick some butt. Um, but now, now, enough with the soccer talk. I know how you feel strongly about that, but I say no more. Okay. We have to go on. we got insects to talk about. Yes. But before insects, let's talk about ourselves and how awesome we are. <laughs> We're pretty awesome. Please, let's talk about ourselves. That's my favorite thing yeah. to do. Yeah. <laughs> so good at it. There was, there was this, this lady. Lady. Who put extensive amount of time and energy and effort to summarize podcasts that have a science background. Yeah, yeah, this is a ton of work. And she published this last year, is that right, uh, 2017? Last year, this is 2018. Oh, it's 2018, okay. Yeah, so um, what Erin is talking about is something that was published online at BioRxiv uh, on April 11th. Called, the title is Science Podcasts, Analysis of Global Production and Outputs from 2004 to 2018. Lewis McKenzie of the Durham University in Durham, UK, Department of Chemistry? Department of Chemistry. She's a, she's a chemist? Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. hold it against her. No, it's just, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad someone is. Someone has to be. Yeah. Just not us. Uh, Lewis did some great stuff reviewing some 900 podcasts. Yeah, she went into detail. Like... How many like how many hosts uh, were they sponsored or co-sponsored by uh, any type of industry or anything? Um, did they add extra notes or extra tidbits to their podcast? Their duration, duration, like how long they've been podcasting, how many episodes they've been podcasting? Yeah, and do you think she listened to all of them? Oh, I that hope would be not. Thousands. Yes. Thousands of episodes. Mm-hmm. Nine hundred and fifty-two freely available English language science podcasts were summarized. She has a, a appendix that you can click at the bottom, where it gives an Excel with all the details of the nine hundred plus that she looked at. Yeah. And most of these were seventy-seven percent were targeting public audience, not unlike our mm-hmm. one listener who's very public. 
Um, most of these were hosted by scientists in various topics, although ours is pretty specific. Mm -hmm. The one thing that, um, you know, it's not bragging if it's true, the one thing that we um, distinguish ourselves from others is um, how long we've been doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, of, in that, what is that, 14-year span, less than 1% lasts longer than two years. No, I'm sorry, that lasts longer than five years. Mm -hmm. um, almost all of them are done within two years. And we're in the top one percentile going into the ninth year. I've never been in the top one percent of anything. Me neither. Mm -hmm. Well, except for that time that we, I don't know if I mentioned this, back-to-back -back IHSA state champions in Scholastic Bowl. But that's in the past. I don't want to stop yeah. bringing it up, Aaron. Mm -hmm. Let's just stay focused on the now and, mm -hmm. and our awesome podcast. So if I heard you right, less than one percent of science-related podcasts go five years. Um, is that what you said? Right. I, okay. Yeah, and, and guess what? You all can uh, read the article and see the uh, remarkable analyses that this uh, chemist did describing you know, the different types of podcasts, their longevity. And then uh, what I thought was really cool was how uh, Lewis described some best practices mm -hmm. that aren't always um, part of the podcast that she surveyed. And uh, maybe it gives some inspiration to others who are trying to get into the biz. Like what? Well, um, supplemental material. One mm -hmm. thing that you do a great job of is giving links to topics that we talk about so that, you know, somebody hears them, they want to get more info, they yeah. can uh, link up to that. Um, that was nice. Others, they talk about the, um, the target audience, if they're done regularly, you know, the frequency. Mm -hmm. We're in the, I think we got categorized as infrequent. <laughs> Aww. Just so that if you want faithful listeners, if there's somewhat of a regular pushing out of new episodes, I think that's what she meant. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah in addition to just duration as far as longevity, also just the number of podcasts that have been put out were also exceptional and that we put out over 100 episodes. And I can't remember the exact number, but that's not, I think it was less than less than 10% would have over 100 episodes. Yeah. That's yeah, over those which, nine years. Yeah, not to brag if it's true. I mean, you know, but... Okay, Let's brag a little, a little bit. A little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you go to the website, and Aaron, you can add I'll that I'll do that, it. yeah. Uh, there's a supplemental table where they have the... They, uh, Lewis, has the name of all of the podcasts. And um, so, yeah, over 900. I'm sure there's one in there that somebody, our listener, would find interesting. Oh, Yeah. All right, so we did we nail that one? We got four so. more things to talk about. Mm -hmm. On to topic number two. Okay. Bees. They're in the news. Bees. Aaron. Like yep. They're so, always in the news. Well, but this time it's something happy. It's okay. Something positive. You know, there's been uh, it's been kind of a bummer summer. It was cold, then hot, then wet. It's yeah. been a lot of extremes this summer, at least in Iowa. Things have been challenging. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Kind of, uh, you know, the men's national team didn't make it into the World Cup. Yeah, mm. but You're talking but, about that soccer thing yeah, again? Sorry, yeah, yeah. trying to move on. But um, so it's nice to get some good news. And uh, this just came hot off the presses from the USDA, National Ag Statistics Service, Iowa Ag News on honeybee colonies, issued out August 1st, 2018. Quote, honeybee colonies for operations with five or more colonies in Iowa as of April 1, 2018, totaled 45,000 colonies. This is a 275% increase above the 12,000 colonies on April 1st of last year. 
So does that mean people with not just, I wouldn't, I don't know, would you say that people with five or more colonies are, tend not to be like hobby beekeepers, that they're doing it for a business? Yeah. I, I, I'm not why, why five? I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think five is a, a, a demarcation for um, hobbyist versus sideline beekeeper. Okay. Um, so it may not be their primary business, but they're trying to... That's right. Okay. That's right. Now, how many of those that have five or more are actually making a business of this? I, you know, I don't know, but it is a way to kind of separate out okay. hobbyists yeah. that might have just a few, mm-hmm. you know, five, fewer than five. Mm-hmm. And these aren't big beekeepers. Well, they may include big beekeepers that are the hundreds of colonies. But the point is, there's been an increase. An uh, increase since when? Since uh, that time last year. In one year, a 275% increase? Yep. Yep, and uh, that those numbers uh, from um, from January March estimate to now April June have been consistent. We've seen only about a nine percent loss uh, in that um, in that from one you know that first quarter to the second quarter, mm-hmm. and that's remarkable because um, you know there was about a nine well in January March of 2017 there was a 19 percent loss. The January March 2018 only a 3% loss. Hmm. So something good is going on. That's uh, if, if impressive. If having bees and keeping them is a, in, you know, a good thing, then something good is going on. And you can, um, maybe we could make an attachment to this uh, report. Sure. Uh, there's some details in here. Uh, USDA goes into oh, you know, kind of thorough review of what could be affecting colony health, health varroa mites, other pests and parasites, diseases, pesticides, other unknown. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, varroa tend to be, you know, the, one of the most important things, especially for the period of time from October to December 2017, about 61% of colonies were affected by varroa. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is from April, June 2017, there was a 26% report of colonies negatively affected from pesticides. That same time, uh, this year, it's only 8%. Hmm, that's good news, too. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's hard for any one factor to take credit for something like pesticide exposure to honeybees because it's it's affected by many things. It's affected by how much pesticide is being used, you know, how, um, how thoughtful the applicators are, how aware the beekeepers are. Um, but... I'd like to think that some of the work we're doing with Randall Cass and Dr. Amy Toth through funding from the USDA is helping with this by communicating about Drift Watch, by getting the word out that, you know, there's approaches, there are best practices that beekeepers and farmers can use to um, reduce the risk of insecticide exposure to bees. Yeah, that's great news. Yeah. And certainly, we're I think we're playing a part with the just the research and also extension we really really put a focus on in the last two years. Yeah, so shout out to Randall. Yeah. Hey, one thing. Uh, are you hearing a buzz? I am now. Yeah. Oh. There it goes. That's gone. Okay. That was weird. Hey, buzz is gone. <laughs> we were talking about bees, so. Well, that's a good way to end it. So <laughs> just uh, thought I'd share that because I think that's good news. Yeah, I can definitely put a link on that, too. It would be interesting to hear similar reports from other states to see if they're also seeing those some of those positive trends should we move on to item number three yeah 
and and by the way, to our audience, we practice really uh, hard on this transition in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. That's a joke. We never rehearse no. any of this stuff. I have no idea what you're talking about when you mention midges. When I say midges. So this has been all-consuming for me since basically our last podcast. Um, there's a new soybean pest in town, and she is a stem-boring maggot. What? Uh, yeah. So a much fly? is unknown. Yeah, so much is unknown about this pest, but... Uh, Justin McMechan at the University of Nebraska and Adam Varenhorst at South Dakota State University. Alumni. Yeah, he's I an alum. alum. And Go from ahead. your lab, they, they've they been noticing these midges infesting the lower stems of soybeans the last couple of years. I've heard about it, but I never got a chance to see it until this summer. I went up to Lynn Grove, which is in northwestern Iowa, to visit a couple fields, tried to get as many observations as I could, collect some plants and all that, and got some fun pictures from the day. And pretty much since then, um, my phone and email have been ringing off the hook about my field too, my field too. And so I put together an ICM news article that I put out this week just summarizing what I know so far. Where's that buzz again? I don't... Anyway, is it just me or are you hearing it? I can hear it now. It's gone. It got weird. Sorry. Maybe our mics are going out. I don't know. Maybe we're just electrifying. So you put out... Uh, so I put out an ICM News that summarized my thoughts and the distribution that I know so far. And so, so far I, I've, I've confirmed it in 10 counties, okay. mostly along the western seaboard, particularly in northwestern the Iowa. Western seaboard, <laughs> the west coast of Iowa. So it's in western Iowa, eastern Nebraska, and eastern South Dakota. How bad is the damage that you're seeing? When I see a plant that's infested with this midge, I know that plant is going to die. What? Oh, my God. Yeah, they, oh they, God. The, these larvae feed on the inside of the stem and consume the tissue, basically cutting off the, I guess, the translocation to the upper yeah. part of the plant, and it girdles the base, and then the plant falls over and dies. So is this real low on the plant? Yeah, it's, it's oh like the God. bottom three or four yeah. inches. And when you see an infestation, is it a few plants, like really one bad plant, or are they... Yeah, the field that I visited this year, um, the field perimeter was hit the hardest. So the first, like, 20 rows, and it was anywhere from 20 to 50% of the plants were infested. I mean, really, really heavily infested. And we saw them early on infection and then later on infection. Uh, But as you walked into the field interior, the amount of injury decreased. So it's definitely a perimeter pest. Um, but we don't even know what the species is. So we've collected a lot of larvae, yeah. and I've tried a couple different techniques for rearing the adults, and yeah. I haven't done it so far. Um, have you seen the adults? No. You haven't seen it, like, flying around or anything? Um, Great Courtney? And, and of course. He can identify the larvae, but um, he is going to help us when we can get some adults. Uh, to our listener, Great Courtney is our... Uh, a fly guy. Sexy. Yeah, yeah, and his expertise is in Diptera. Hey, it's finally paying off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. actually cares about I know, it's like bringing back this flashback from my master's because I studied so, uh, sunflower midge. Oh, yeah? And so it's kind of bringing back that that feeding injury or basically the plant just falls apart. Wow. And Same so, thing in sunflowers. But it was the sunflower head. Oh, this okay. is at the base. And so it's, you know, what we can say so far is that it's a midge, but 
Okay. You can't get any more specific than that. So a couple questions. Um, any shared uh, features about the perimeters where you see these outbreaks? Like, is it along a wood edge only, or does it matter? This is my impression, sure. is that Bring the soybean, the edge that was heavily infested was, of course, bordering a soybean field that was planted last year because, you know, the corn-soybean rotation. Okay. So where the soybean field was last year, that's where the injury was the greatest this year. Okay. So it, okay. it leads me to believe that they overwinter in yeah. the soil or leaf litter in soybean. And then as they emerge, they fly to the new emerging soybean and fly only as far as they have to. They're kind of a weak, they're weak, small So just flies. in case my mom's listening, mm-hmm. mom, a midge is a tiny little fly. They're right? small, delicate flies with long legs, yeah. uh, unusually hairy bodies for flies. <laughs> And long antennae. I find that funny. (laughs) (laughs) They're just, it's unusually hairy. That's the description. I mean, that's a sort of a vague word, right? Like unusual. unusual. (laughs) But you would notice. I guess. Like if you were in the mall and you saw somebody. Whoa. That person's unusually hairy. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now I see. They're just small, weak. I mean, they're just so fragile and long antennae. So not a great disperser. Right. But it still leaves the question, okay, I get it. You just laid out a scenario where they're building up a local population mm-hmm. from the year before, but what got them there? Is there it, we, we don't, don't know, right? We don't we know if it's that. a invasive. We yeah. don't know if it's a host shift of uh, yeah. an existing yeah. species from, like, another legume or something. Don't I got my hand up in the air. Can I ask another question? Yes. Were they weedy fields? The... the the summary that I can say is that there was no consistent pattern between weeds, data planting, row spacing, tillage, okay. and manure. Because uh-huh. I saw a variety of, of different scenarios. Okay. Uh, some farmers also use insecticidal seed treatments, and it did not appear to suppress. Um, but they okay. were using kind of like that standard 250 rate. And so I can imagine if they planted with it, that's the standard rate, and midges came in, you know, 30, 40 days after planting may not have a systemic effect. Oh, this is fantastic. Mm -hmm. This is like a real insect ecology. It's kind of really blown up this year, Mm -hmm. and I know Nebraska and South Dakota are dealing with it too. I mean, it's uh, troublesome. It's going to be a pain for soybean farmers, but it, you know, Professionally, it's kind of exciting. I mean, like like with any stem boring pest, it's exceptionally difficult to control. If you think about some of the caterpillars and corn, once they get inside the plant, there's not a lot you can do. And so it's been really frustrating for these farmers because, like I said, if it's infested, it's likely going to just straight up die. And so you have tremendous yield loss around the perimeters, and there's not a lot you can do. once you know Once the plants are in the ground, we don't have a way to time adult movement yet of course we're not at that we don't even know what it is yeah Yeah. and so we're so far away from that type of recommendation i I feel really bad for these farmers you know we need to do what we need we should i'll tell you what we need to do let's call up our uh, soybean breeder friends is there resistance so i met jesse alt yeah at one of these fields and she jesse alt um she's a breeder with pioneer corteva yes corteva Uh, it's Corteva forever. That's Corteva how, forever. That's exactly how I was told yeah, to say it, Corteva. Um, but she visited with me uh, for two fields that we went to near Lingrove, and the farmer uh, that we visited with had planted a broad spectrum of genetics. Uh, okay. Jesse said that's a it, the, the fields that he was talking about was a wide 
wide genetic diversity. Okay. And so there didn't seem to be an immediate like, oh, they like this or they don't like that. And so she was impressed by, by that aspect. Say that again. Uh, the, the farmer had planted yeah. multiple genetics right. and, and they were infesting them equally. equally. They didn't seem uh-huh. to have a preference okay. or a okay. uh, repellent okay. effect from any of those. She was surprised by... Well, were there clear differences amongst those varieties? Did you see, oh, that's a weird looking one and that one's got more hair than others? Hmm. I mean, to her, it, oh, she said so the weird. architecture looked different, yeah. but to me, it it was... It, they didn't look that different, but yeah. to a plant breeder, I'm sure it's night and day. Yeah, I'm just thinking of um, Danny um, and um, his wife Artie here, soybean breeders. They've been looking at some really weird varieties of soybeans as part of a GWAS, which is an acronym for this sort of global expansion thing. People call it right now. Want to yeah. get in on the midge discussion? Anyway, sounds like uh, a lot yet to be understood. So this. much, yeah. yeah. Um, this won't be the last time we talk about this. Absolutely not. I, I anticipate it to kind of expand. Oh, and uh, I just put out the ICM news just to raise awareness, and I'm getting a lot of almost like a crowdsourcing effect of people oh, sure. like, me too, me too. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know what it was. You know, um, I, I knew I had dead plants around the edge. I You know, I opened some up, and, yep, I saw those orange maggots. And I'm like, oh. Interesting. Yeah. Orange. Do you have pictures? Can we post some Absolutely. pictures? Absolutely. Of course I have pictures. The, the, the younger instars are kind of clear, uh-huh. but as they mature, they, of course they get bigger, but they also turn, they look like a mandarin orange slice. Wow. Yeah, they're pretty wow. beautiful looking. Boy, you girlfriend, you're getting all kinds of calls. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I never get calls. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was number three. We still have two more to go. Okay. Aphids everywhere. Yeah. Man, we're at 21 minutes. People are getting their money's worth this time. <laughs> Since we met, I would say aphids are exploding. Not only soybean aphid, but aphids in corn as well. Oh, really? They're hitting the northern tier counties pretty hard, as well as um, what I'm hearing about soybean aphids as well. Not only in our plots, but in commercial fields. They've, they've been having either ideal temperatures or just mass migration. They're just popping up everywhere. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, I've, I've been hearing this from the graduate students and the research plots that, you know, most of July was quiet. Yep. Very little. But the last week they started seeing anywhere from 10 to 20% of the plants mm-hmm. infested with aphids and mm-hmm. numbers increasing. Um, you know, it seems a little late in the year to me. You know, just kind of my intuition thinking, yeah, usually we're a bit further along in an infestation. Yeah. Um, but... We still have several weeks to go, right, for yep. uh, development. So what do you think? You think we're going to have an outbreak that needs... I think there's definitely training? fields that will need to be treated based on our 250 per plant threshold uh-huh. just because of the number of plants infested and the number of aphids per plant, how quickly they're increasing. And so uh, when most of the plants have aphids and you have kind of nice temperatures, I feel like that's when... Yeah. The spidey sense should be activated. And, and we have, in central Iowa at least, had fairly mild temperatures mm-hmm. the last two weeks. Yep. Like I think it's been great for 70 aphids. 70 to 80. Uh, and it's funny because I've been hearing all around the country it's so hot. But it's like, not here. This has been beautiful. Yeah, it's been <laughs> really nice. So. Yep. And so um, all I would say is that if you decide to treat 
no matter what, no matter what the aphid pressure is, and you feel like you didn't get a good knockdown, if you have a lot of aphid survivors, we'd love to know about it. We want to come out and visit. We have a graduate student that would be interested in collecting aphids. get in the car and drive to you. (laughs) It'll make that screeching sound you see on the cartoon. Mm -hmm. But uh, he will come and collect aphids, and we want to do a performance bioassay to see if they're resistant or susceptible. So please get in contact with us. And just be thoughtful about your insecticide selection and, and don't assume that it's going to work if it's a pyrethroid. Yeah. All right. Last one. Mm-hmm. Number five. Speaking of soybean aphid, yeah. I just wanted to put a plug out. We have a new field guide uh, partially sponsored by the North Central Soybean Research Program. Uh, it's a second edition of the field guide. It's a spiral bound and we've added some extra content about pyrethroid resistance and just insecticide resistance management in general. So I'll put a link. You you can get a free PDF or you can buy physical copies at our extension store. And it's a great resource over biology, life cycle, and then our current management options for host plant resistance and insecticides. Uh, Don't take this the wrong way. Hmm. This is really dense. Dense. There's a oh. lot of information. It's pretty. Yeah, there. it's almost sixty pages, but it's a, it you know it's small pages. Yeah, but I yeah. Mean, it's, and yeah there, it's packed. Doesn't look like there's any um, uh, shaft. There's no fluff going on with this. Yeah. It's hardcore soybean aphid biology. And it has shout outs to a bunch of us who work in this area. Yeah, it's you and Bob Cook, especially right? Bob Cook at the University of Minnesota, helped me update the materials, swap out some pictures, so it's you know, keep it fresh, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah this is great. And it's available throughout the North Central Research uh, Region, which includes I think like ten or twelve states. Sweet. Yeah. Hey, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Nice job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just want to put a plug out. We have a, a field day coming up on September six with PFI. Practical farming is about. <laughs> yep, and it's near Marble Rock. We're working with farmer Dennis Carney, who we've been doing research on his farm for a couple of years, and we're going to highlight some of the work that we're doing with host plant resistance for soybean aphids. So I think they appreciate RSVPs. Again, that's September 6th near Marble Rock, Iowa. Do you have to be a PFI member to attend? Mm, I don't know. It's a good question. You can crash the party. Yeah, I think you can. Yeah. I'll put a link. I think uh, there's a, we have a PDF, a, a little bit more information. It's from 10 to 1. In addition to our topics, there's going to be some conversations about conservation and the use of cover crops. You know, not to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. But you do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? Um, I don't feel like it's a lot. But mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, maybe it is. Um, September 6th. All these people, they just want to talk to you so badly. Um, September 6th, I wonder if you will have... Some examples of those midge-infested stems, and all. To Certainly could bring some. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I would love to be there, but unfortunately, I'm going to be in Brazil that mm-hmm. week. Somebody had to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. Got to talk to the Brazilian Congress of Entomology. Nice. About the potential risk of soybean aphids to that great nation's soybean production. Well then. Anyway, hey. Okay. This wraps it up. Where are we at? Has that been an hour? Uh, just under 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. That's one of our longest. Yeah. Hey, if you want to find more about what's going on, and it, you know, we have a lot going on, uh, Google soybean entomology. Uh, check out Aaron with their nonstop streaming Twitters, at Aaron W. Hodson, all one word. Please feel free to email us, O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L, at iastate.edu, and Aaron at E-W-H at iastate.edu. We answer our emails. Yeah, we do. We do. Pretty much. I'm desperate. I, I just am so lonely. Somebody email me. Subscribe to our iTunes. 
Stitcher, Google Play, and Pocket Cast so you can download these all the time and keep this long-lasting nine-year exceptional going. Exceptional podcast. Thank you all. Yep, thanks. Bye.